A patient left his doctor's office with a prescription. He stuck it in his pocket, but he forgot to get it filled. However, every day for the next two years, he showed it to a train conductor who accepted it as his railroad pass. Once it got him into a concert, another time into a ball game. Once he went to the symphony, showed the piece of paper to the usher at the door, and they escorted him to box seats. His daughter found the prescription, played it on the piano, and her rendition was so good it won her a scholarship to the Conservatory of Music. What a prescription! Yet some folks say Bible prophecy is just as vague, just as uncertain, just as open to interpretation as the doctor's prescription. Tonight, Daniel shows us that that is not true. God is not ambiguous. He doesn't communicate in nebulous generalities. When God speaks, He never uses terms like roughly speaking or approximately. God is always exact in His calculations. Precise are His prophecies. God's predictions strike their targets with pinpoint accuracy. Though they fly across the centuries, they always hit bullseye, as in Daniel chapter 9. Verse 1 begins, In the first year of Darius, that is 538 B.C., the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, Daniel is in his late 80s. He's seen kingdoms rise and fall. He was there when Babylon conquered the world. He was also there the night that Babylon fell without a fight. And Daniel had seen his people, his beloved Jews, living peacefully in Jerusalem, only to be invaded, drug off as slaves, and made to settle in this distant pagan land. One day, as Daniel was reading in the Scriptures, a detail that he may have never seen before suddenly leaped off the page. He was reading Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet was in Jerusalem writing to the captives in Babylon. And he wrote, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. At the time, the Jews had been in Babylon for 67 years. Daniel realizes that their sentence is about to expire. The Jews are about to go home. What would the future hold? Jerusalem had been reduced to rubble. The temple had been toppled. The city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah would have to be rebuilt. Were they up to the challenge? Well, he says in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Apparently, Daniel also read the next three verses in Jeremiah 29 in which God says this, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me With all your heart, I will be found by you and will bring back your captivity. Daniel knew that even though the 70 years were almost up, there was still some unfinished business. The Jews weren't ready to return. They owed God an apology. Recently, I read a list, ran across a list of English words that are difficult to pronounce. Here are some of the most difficult to pronounce English words. Rural. That's a tough one to get out. Isthmus. Anesthetize. Penguin. Mischievous. I've been practicing. Worcestershire. As in the steak sauce. But the three hardest words to pronounce in English. 
I was wrong. Daniel knew that unless the Jews confessed their sin, their captivity would have been wasted. You never learn from a mistake that you deny. It's been said a man never admits his mistake, a man who never admits his mistake can never learn from it. Well, here Daniel chapter 4 admits their sins. He intercedes for the Jews. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. you got to notice Daniel's humility and his identification with his own people. Daniel's one of the Bible's godliest men. I'm sure he sinned, but the scripture never mentions it. Yet here, he doesn't pray, they have sinned. No, he prays, we have sinned. And he doesn't try to gloss over their sin. He doesn't soften sin by renaming it. You know, a lot of people try that. He doesn't just call it a slip or a mistake. Notice the words Daniel uses. Sin. It means to miss the mark. Iniquity is to distort or to warp or to twist. Wickedly speaks of a deliberate defiance. Rebel means to hate authority. Departing from your precepts could be translated to ignore and turn aside from God. You see, sin isn't a mere slip-up. It's high-handed rebellion. That's what it is. Our nature has become warped. We've bucked God's authority. We've deliberately ignored Him in order to do as we please. See, God wants us to be free from our sin, but until we're brutally honest in defining it, we're not ready for His deliverance. C.S. Lewis once said, the first prayer above all other prayers is this, Lord, let it be the real I who prays, and let it be the real you that I pray to. Daniel sees God as he is, great and awesome, who keeps covenant and mercy, but he also sees himself as he really is, warped and wicked and rebellious. He continues in verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. What a contrast. To us belongs shame, but to God belongs mercy and forgiveness. A fireman was once instructing a kindergarten class what to do in case of a fire. He said, the first thing you do is you go to the door and you feel if it's hot. Second, you drop to your knees. Does anyone know why you drop to your knees? One little boy raised his hand and said, sure, it's to ask God to help you get out of the mess you're in. Well, Daniel felt that the door was hot. God was ready to move. And so he drops to his knees and he asks God for mercy. He says, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us, bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. You remember the law of Moses had contained blessings if they obeyed and curses if they disobeyed. They were allowed to write their own history based on their adherence. But the Jews chose the curses rather than the blessings. Deuteronomy 28 verse 47 had predicted, Because you did not serve the Lord your God, you shall serve your enemies 
whom the Lord will send against you. And indeed God had brought the Babylonians against them. Well, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and, the Lord's, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear in here. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Verse 18 sounds like it was taken from the New Testament, doesn't it? Bless us, Lord, not because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. Daniel knows grace. He knows not to barter good works for God's pardon. It doesn't work that way. Forgiveness is about God's mercy, not our merit. Well, verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Notice three exclamation marks in one verse. Daniel is not just praying. He is praying with passion. And so should we. You've heard it said, don't just, pray, pray, don't just say prayers. You need to pray prayers. There's a difference. I've heard it put, the prayer God answers comes not from the roof of your mouth, but from the root of your heart. Here Daniel's praying with all his heart. Verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening sacrifice or the evening offering. Now Daniel remembers the time of the day that the angel Gabriel arrived and came to him. He remembers that it was at the evening sacrifice. Now this is interesting to me. For Daniel has been away from Jerusalem now for 67 years. The temple has been lying in ruins For a generation. There had not been an evening sacrifice for seven decades. Yet Daniel still reckons time based on the temple worship. His home might have been in Babylon, but obviously his heart had never left Jerusalem. And likewise, our home might be this world, but our hearts needs to be in the heavenlies with our Lord Jesus. And Gabriel's timing here was no accident. The evening sacrifice, as with all the sacrifices, spoke of Jesus. Moses had ordered in Numbers 28 that an unblemished lamb, one year old, was to be offered to God each evening. The evening sacrifice occurred at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And recall, it was at 3 p.m. that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was our unblemished lamb who knew no sin. He was our evening sacrifice. Gabriel is about to unveil specific details about the Messiah. That's why it's no accident that when he arrives, he does so. His arrival points to Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 22, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, 
I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And the vision that Gabriel is about to reveal to Daniel is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. An accurate grasp of this vision is crucial to understanding in Tom's prophecy. This is one of the most intriguing, phenomenal, faith-building chapters in all of the Bible. Now understand, Daniel's concern is the future of his people and of the holy city, Jerusalem. His concern is the Jews in Jerusalem. After 70 years now in exile, the Jews are about to be released. Daniel won't live to see what happens, and so God shows him what is determined upon Israel in advance. Verse 24 begins. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, in God's eyes, humanity is broken down into three people groups. There are the Jews, there is the church, and there are the Gentiles, or the lost world. This prophecy relates to only one of those three groups. It doesn't relate to the church, nor does it relate to the Gentiles. These 70 weeks, notice, are determined for the Jews and for Jerusalem. Now, Gabriel says that a time frame is determined, or it's divided out. It's marked off on God's calendar. Understand, God has blocked off on His daytimer a period of 70 weeks to accomplish certain purposes for Israel. And understand the language here. The word week in our text is actually the Hebrew word for seven. So literally, God is reserving a period of 70 sevens. But here's the question. Seven what? Seven hours? Seven days? Seven years? There are three reasons why I believe that this refers to 70 periods of seven years. First, to speak of a week of, a week of years in Daniel's day was a very common phrase. You know, we speak of years in terms of groups. We talk about 10 years as being a decade. Well, the Hebrews spoke of years in groups of seven. Second, Daniel 12 verse 11 mentions a period of 1,290 days from the defilement of the temple to its purification. Now, that period is roughly equal to the last half of Daniel's last week. Thus, if a half of week is right at three and a half years, then a full week would then be seven years. Daniel 12, verse 11. Then the third reason I believe that these weeks are periods of seven years is that Moses commanded that every seventh year the land should rest. The fields should go uncultivated. This would replenish the nutrients. This would keep the farmland fertile. This was good wisdom. But because of the greed of the Jews... They ignored this command. And it was 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, that tells us it was for 490 years, or 70 periods of seven years, that they failed to let the land rest. They violated 70 Sabbath years. That's why they spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. See, God saw to it that the land would get its rest one way or the other. And so here's the point. It took the Jews 77 or 490 years to get into their trouble. And God has allowed it the same amount of time to get the Jews out of trouble. And here are the six promises that God is going to accomplish in this coming 490 years, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up 
vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. First, in this 490 years, God is going to end the transgression. This is the cosmic revolt led by Satan. Satan is going to be sacked. The next two promises address the issue of sin. Second, God is going to stop the sinner. He's going to make an end of sins. And third, he's going to cancel out sin. He's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. He's going to issue a pardon and establish a means by which sinners can find peace with a holy God. Fourth, God is going to complete our salvation. He's going to bring in an everlasting righteousness. That means that everything that sin has defiled is going to be cleansed. And it's going to be made right with God again. Everything. Fifth, he is going to confirm the scriptures. He's going to seal up the vision and prophecy. All of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And then sixth, God is going to cleanse the temple. He's going to anoint the holy place or rededicate the temple in Jerusalem. Now, how many of these promises have been kept? Only one. The third. On the cross, Jesus made reconciliation for iniquity. Some of the others have seen partial fulfillments, but not a total fulfillment. Yet understand the promise. God vows to fulfill all six of these promises over a period of 490 years. Now verse 25 gets very specific. God puts parameters on this time frame. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now here's the starting point for these 70 weeks or this 490 years. The going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That occurred, you can read about it, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. It occurred on March the 14th, 445 B.C. That's when the Persian king Artaxerxes issued to a Jew named Nehemiah orders to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls around the city. Now, God breaks down these 77s into three groups of weeks. Notice there is seven weeks, then there's 62 weeks, and then there's one week. The first seven, or 49 years, takes us from 445 B.C. to 397 B.C., which was the time of Malachi and the culmination of the Old Testament canon of Scripture. The second section, which includes the first seven, seven plus 62 weeks, equals 69 weeks. So from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, or the Messiah the Prince, there shall be 483 years. Now when we compute Daniel's dates, realize where the prophet is living at the time. He's in Babylon. And the ancient Babylonians used a 360-day per calendar year. That means 69, years or 69 weeks or 483 years equals 173,880 days. So realize what our text is telling us. Add 173,880 days to March the 14th, 445 B.C., and you'll discover the exact day that the Messiah will present himself to the Jews and to Jerusalem. He is identifying here the promised Savior. Now to extrapolate this out onto our Julian calendar, you have to do some technicalities. There are some leap years you have to account for. There's some other nuances in the calendar Robert Anderson, in his classic book, The Coming Prince, does an excellent job with these tedious calculations. But after all the technicalities get applied, Anderson concludes that 173,880 days 
from March the 14th, 445 B.C., brings you to April the 6th, 32 A.D. And do you know what happened on that day? That, my friends, was the Sunday before the Passover when Jesus rode his donkey down the Mount of Olives and formally presented himself to the nation as their Messiah. The crowd knew what he was doing. They sang a Messianic psalm, Psalm 118, and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Realize, 570 years in advance, Daniel is shown the exact day God's Messiah will come to save his people. Is that amazing or what? It's ironic, his triumphant entry was the only public demonstration Jesus ever orchestrated, let alone allowed. He knew Daniel's prophecy, and he cooperated with its fulfillment. This is why in Luke chapter 19, Jesus wept when he saw that the Jewish leaders had rejected him. He cried, if you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace... You did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus knew what was going on. Daniel had booked an appointment for the Israel to meet its Messiah. Yet sadly, the Jews had missed their appointment. And the Lord held them responsible for not recognizing the time of their visitation. Even to this day, the Jews refused to even consider This Daniel chapter 9 prophecy. There is a famed 13th century rabbi named Maimonides who wrote a letter entitled Igorit Timon. He said in this letter, Daniel has elucidated to us the profundities of the knowledge of the end times. However, since they are secret, the wise, that is the wise rabbis or the wise Jews, barred the calculation of the days of the Messiah's coming so that the untutored populace will not be led astray when they see that the end times have already come, but there is no sign of the Messiah. For this reason, the wise have decreed, cursed be he who calculates the end times. You see what they're doing. Because the Jews might interpret Daniel's prophecy and see that it points directly to our Lord Jesus. They were forbidden by their rabbis from even engaging in its calculations. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the blindness that has come upon Israel. But the prophecy isn't over. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Between the end of the 7 plus 62, or the 69th week, between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week, there is a gap of an unspecified period of time in which two events are going to occur. First, Messiah will be cut off. The Hebrew term karath implies a violent death or an execution, literally. And as we know, four days after Jesus' triumphant entry, what happened? He was rejected by the people and he was crucified. As Daniel puts it, Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. And it's true. Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing. He died in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. Not for himself, but for us. But Daniel mentions another event that is going to happen between the 69th and 70th week. Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. He says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. That's an idiom for an invasion. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. This war's results are going to be devastating. Now, this destruction occurred in 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus and four Roman legions leveled the city of Jerusalem. The Romans killed over a million Jews. They burned the temple to the ground and they scattered the Jews to the nations all around the world. 
So for the last two millenniums, the Jews have been living as strangers in a strange land. They've been dispersed. It's called the diaspora. Now we know from this prophecy that the gap of time between the 69th and 70th week consists of at least 38 years, for Jesus was cut off in 32 A.D., whereas Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 A.D., 38 years later, and both those events come between the 69th and 70th week. In reality, though, this gap of time is much, much longer. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the Romans that God is now working among the Gentiles, that God has temporarily set aside the Jews in order to build His church. In Romans 11, verse 25, he explains, hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This gap of time between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel is now being used by God to extend salvation to the Gentiles and to build His church. In the New Testament, Paul calls this a mystery. It was a development that was hidden from the Hebrew prophets. They were only focused on the 70 weeks because that was what was determined on the Jews in Jerusalem. They didn't see the gap between the 69th and 70th week. And that gap of time is now 1,984 years and counting. But there is determined upon the Jews in Jerusalem a 70th week, a final period of seven years. There has to be in order to fulfill God's six promises. And remember, these six promises are determined on Israel. This is one reason I believe the church will be raptured before the start of the 70th week, or that last period of seven years we later call the Great Tribulation. And he gives us parameters for that last week. He says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now this final week begins when a ruler signs a treaty with Israel. And according to the previous verse, this ruler is the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD or the ruler of Rome. In Isaiah 28 verse 15, we're told that one day Israel will make a covenant with death. Isaiah calls it an agreement with hell. And this is when it happens, at the outset of this final week, this 70th week of Daniel. Now remember what we talked about back in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. The last empire before the return of the Messiah will be a mixture of iron and clay or a revival of ancient Rome. Today the European Union represents just such a political entity. And the ruler of this last day's Rome is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist. Apparently, Daniel's 70th week begins when the Jews sign a treaty with the Antichrist or with this little horn. Perhaps this is the long-awaited peace accord between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This treaty might be what allows the Jews to rebuild their temple. Yet once it's signed... You can count three and a half years, and at the middle of this final week, this final seven-year period, this Roman ruler is going to break his covenant, and he is going to stop the temple sacrifices. In chapter 8, verse 13, we saw that this is what Antiochus did in the days of the Maccabees. Daniel referred to it as the transgression or the abomination of desolation. Here the same terminology is used for what's done by the Antichrist in the last days. On wings of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. 
Again, Jesus used the same terminology in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when he referred to this same last day's event as the abomination of desolation. This is a big deal in the eyes of God. In the middle of this final week, this final seven-year period, this Roman ruler is going to interrupt the sacrifices and he's going to claim to be God. This blasphemous act on the part of this ruler will incite God's judgment. As a result, the Antichrist's insolence will bring upon this deserving world God's wrath in full bore. Great desolation will occur. The book of Revelation tells us that God's judgments conclude with the return of Jesus at the end of this seven years. The Antichrist will be destroyed. God's kingdom will be established. Now, Gabriel's description of this last week makes five assumptions that leads me to conclude that this final period of judgment just might be right around the corner on our calendars. First, this obviously assumes that Israel has been regathered to their ancient land and is a nation once more. After 2,000 years living in exile, this occurred at 12.01 a.m. on May the 15th, 1948. Against all odds, the modern state of Israel was born. Second, the Temple Mount, this assumes that the Temple Mount will be in Jewish hands and that the Temple will be rebuilt. The Antichrist can't stop the sacrifices unless they've been restarted. And it was during the Six-Day War of 1967 that the old city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, was seized by the Israelis. Since June 1967, there has been growing interest by committed, well-organized, well-funded Jews to rebuild their temple. Plans are underway even as we speak. A third assumption. The final week of Daniel requires a revival of Rome. And that is exactly what has happened with the fall of communism and the emergence of the European Union. Europe now leads the way toward global unification. A fourth assumption. Out of this revived Roman Empire, a leader will emerge. And today, the world longs for such a leader. Problems have become unsolvable. The world is hungry for a leader with answers. And then fifth, that leader will negotiate a covenant with Israel. And for 40 years at least, a peace treaty between the Jews and the Arabs has been in the works. On again, off again. Israel yearns for peace. See, here are five assumptions that have come about in our day. Here are five reasons I believe we're living in the last days. We're living in that period just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that is 536 B.C., a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Daniel sees the future in chapter 9. God will fulfill His promises to Israel. But he realizes that it's going to take some time, at least 490 years, plus this undisclosed gap. Like us, he gets impatient with God's promises. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all. Till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, based on the dating of the next verse, Daniel fasted through Passover. He fasted while other Jews feasted. Obviously, he was deeply troubled. Verse 4. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, 
and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. This man is very similar to the person Ezekiel saw on God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. He's also similar to the description John gives us of the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1. But appearances can be deceiving. It is possible that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But there are some problems with that suggestion that I'll show you later here in chapter 10. He goes on. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them. These men didn't see what Daniel saw, but they sensed something supernatural. They knew something was up because we're told, so they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision. And no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. This is interesting to me. Put old Daniel in the lion's den, and he's not fidgety at all. But confront him with the glory of God, and he faints. His knees buckle. Hey, Daniel had a good handle on what to fear and what not to fear. The average man would have quaked at the lions and remained oblivious to God. Daniel was just the opposite. He recounts, Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Notice though the messenger calls Daniel greatly beloved. This is twice he's called him by that phrase. You know, in the Bible, there is an intriguing connection between God's favor and prophetic insight. It seems the people God loves are those whom He shares His future plans. That makes sense. People you love, you share their your secrets with them, don't you? It's part of loving someone. Here's something true of God. The people that He's intimate with, the people that He has a relationship with, He loves to share His secrets. He loves to share His future plans with those people. The great prophetic book in the Old Testament is what? It's Daniel. And guess how Daniel is referred to? He's called greatly beloved. The greatest prophetic book in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. And guess which of Jesus' apostles was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Guess which one? It was John. See, God's favor and God's foresight go hand in hand. Well, then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Now remember, Daniel had been praying for three full weeks. And when did God first hear Daniel's prayer? Day one. So what delayed God's messenger from arriving over those three weeks? He tells us, verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now this is fascinating. Here, a portal opens up that allows us to peek beyond the physical into the spiritual. You know, most of the time we're unaware of its existence, but the Bible teaches us that there is another world. There is a realm, a hyperspace, a parallel universe, a spiritual dimension that is different but complementary to ours. Science can prove mathematically that there are multiple dimensions of existence stacked on top of each other. Theoretically, at this very moment, a train could be running through this room in another dimension. There is a spiritual world parallel to ours that is invisible, that is intangible, but that is very real. So much so that at times it can dramatically affect what's going on even in our world. 
Here we're told that the prince of Persia delayed God's messenger or God's angel for three weeks. Obviously, this is more than a mere man if he hindered a supernatural angel. I believe this prince of Persia is a demon. Apparently, Satan's henchmen are highly organized. Ephesians 6 speaks of our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These rulers of the darkness have echelons of rank and echelons of jurisdiction. The vast darkness that blankets our world is at least partly caused by a strong demonic grip. Recall when Satan tempted Jesus. His final offer to our Lord were the kingdoms of this world. Jesus obviously declined. But it always intrigues me. Jesus didn't argue with Satan's right to make the offer. In John 12, verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. You know, we sing of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. And in a sovereign sense, that's true. But on a practical level, we could sing the same of Satan. The devil is currently controlling the powers of this world. Here, God's messenger identifies a demon who was assigned to the kingdom of Persia. Apparently, the godless Gentile nations are controlled by demons. You know, it's well known that Hitler was steeped in the occult. Before he launched his massive invasions in World War II, he spent the night consulting with spirits. There are demons controlling this earth, and there are individual demons who have been assigned to various nations. You would think the demon in charge of America is having a field day. For three weeks, there had been a slugfest in the heavens. The prince of Persia hindered and delayed God's messenger. Imagine what's going on right now behind the veil. What if we could look right now into the spirit realm? If the sky suddenly opened and we could look into the next dimension, would we see a conflict? Would we see carnage? Would we see bombs going off? I have no doubt that right this second, there are angels and demons wrestling for your attention, for your life. Demons are trying to distract you and cause doubt in your heart. Angels are trying to block those distractions and build up faith. Without knowing it, we are involved in this conflict. It's important for us to wake up to the warfare and take up the whole armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. You know, God has given us spiritual weapons for us to use. In Revelation 12, verse 11, we find two weapons. The blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. Two powerful weapons. In the gospel, the disciples cast out demons in Jesus' name. That too is a spiritual weapon. Ephesians 6 tells us about our spiritual armor and about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our weapons are many, and we need to use them. Now here, even though Daniel doesn't realize it, he is involved in this spiritual conflict through prayer. Here's a provocative point. Daniel's fast and this spiritual skirmish both lasted 21 days. I wonder if Daniel had stopped praying on the 20th day, would the angel have broken through? We're not sure. Our text doesn't tell us. But other passages teach that prayer is a key weapon in spiritual warfare. Recall when the disciples were unable to cast out the demon. You remember what Jesus told them? He said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. But notice this messenger needed help to break through this demonic resistance. Michael, an archangel, comes to the rescue. He and God's messenger double-team the prince of Persia and together overpower him. That would have been a pay-per-view event you would have wanted to buy. 
But this is the reason that some scholars reject the idea that the messenger here is Jesus. I mentioned it earlier. Our Lord is too strong to be hindered by a demon. By all the demons, for that matter. Certainly a point worth considering. Well, he says in verse 14, Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. The appearance of God's messenger here sort of sets the stage for Daniel's last vision in chapters 11 and 12. Now when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, there's the third time, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Notice Daniel gets touched by an angel three times in this chapter. The first touch is after Daniel sees God's glory and he faints. The messenger touches Daniel and he rises to his feet. The second touch opens up the communication lines. And the third touch gives God's servant strength again. And you know, God's touch does the same thing in our lives as well. Adoration, communication, fortification. Above all else, that's why we need God's touch in our lives. And then verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted In the scripture of truth, no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. In the Bible, the angel Michael's mission always involves Israel. Just as demons are assigned to Gentile nations, apparently God's angels are assigned to his people. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 is an interesting verse. It relates to us. It refers to angels as ministering spirits sent forth the minister to those who will inherit salvation. Is there such a thing as a guardian angel? Apparently so. Has an angel been assigned to you? I think so. I like what Pastor Chuck used to say. We're not supposed to pray to angels, but occasionally I say thanks. (laughs) And after the tough time some of you put your angel through, I think a word of thanks would be appropriate. There we'll end Daniel chapter 10. 